0: You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker.
1: This is Petra Hilleberg, president and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort.
0: This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. On August 5th, Steve Swenson, Graham Zimmerman, Chris Wright, and Mark Ritchie stood on top of Link Saar, a 7,041-meter peak in Pakistan that had resisted numerous previous attempts. Their successful climb of the southeast face was the culmination of two months of effort by a powerful team of American climbers. Two veterans in their 60s, and two of the leading alpinists of today's younger generation. Our guests for this episode are Steve Swenson, author of the recent book Karakoram, about 40 years of climbing in Pakistan, and Graham Zimmerman, the youngest member of this expedition. We're giving them a bit of extra time on this show because of the significance of this climb and because of the complex nature of the mountain and their story. I reached them at the start of September, just a few days after they had both returned from Pakistan. Graham and Steve, welcome to the cutting edge and congratulations on the first ascent of Linksar last month. Steve, I thought we'd start off with a, a geography lesson uh, for listeners who are familiar with the big peaks of the Baltoro K2 and the Gashabrums and Great Trango. Where, where is Linksar in relation to these mountains and how do you get
1: to it? Uh, Linksar would be southeast of K2 and the big mountains at the head of the glacier. That whole area, the way you get there is uh, you continue east from Skardu Pass where you would turn off to go north up the Shigar River to K2. Um, you go all the way up to Kaplu and part way up the Hushe Valley. And then right away, there's a river. The Condos River comes into the Hushe River right there. And, you know, you follow that on up to the Kaberi Glacier and, and uh, Linksar is right there um, on the west side of the Kaberi Glacier, maybe uh, five or six kilometers from the snout.
0: And, and it's only been recently that you've been able to even go to Linksar. Is that, is that correct?
1: That's true for the most part. Uh, The Condus Valley was open for two years in 2000 and 2001. And uh, we actually got a permit for an expedition to go there in 2001. That was my first attempt on Langsar. And then the area was closed until 2017 when um, Graham and Chris Wright and I uh, got a permit and, and went there, which would be my second attempt on the mountain.
0: Anyway, so it was closed for 16 years. Is that because of the conflict between Pakistan and India?
1: Yeah. I mean, they had uh, live, uh, you know, real fighting uh, between 86 and 2004. That they were, you know, shelling each other. Uh, but in 2004, they had a, uh, a ceasefire all along the line of control and the actual ground position line. And, uh, so it's been pretty quiet, uh, ever since, uh, but, uh, but they still kept the area closed because it was such a high security restricted area with lots of military movement. And they, they just didn't, uh, open it up to foreigners until, uh, you know, until, uh, quite recently.
0: Now it was open before you were there in 2001, right? Because wasn't it, uh, the mountain had been attempted before you were there.
1: That's right. Uh, the whole Karakoram was closed uh, in much of the 60s and the very early 70s, but then the Karakoram opened again, including K2. Uh, but all of the Karakoram opened, you know, well, most of it, the big mountains, K2, the Broad Peak, gasherbrums all opened up in 1974. And so between 1974 and 1984, this area would have been open as well. And a Japanese expedition went in there in 1979 and made an attempt on it. That would be the first attempt on Linksar.
0: And and when you're going in from the Condes Valley, are you, are you attempting sort of the east side of Lynxar or the south side or or either one?
1: It'd be the sort of the southeast face is is what what we ended up climbing. Um but but the uh when we went there in two thousand one, we had no idea um you know where to go on the mountains. So most of that expedition was spent doing a pretty thorough reconnaissance around the east side, south side, and around to the north side as well to try to find the, the best route or the safest route. It's hard to find. Uh, there's a lot of objective hazard on the mountain. It's hard to find a way that you can kind of snake your way up through, uh, you know, along ridge lines and things to avoid being under uh, overhead hazards.
0: And did you actually make an attempt in 2001? Did you get on the mountain?
1: Sort of. Uh, I, you know, for work reasons, I didn't come to the expedition until about three weeks late. And George Lowe, uh, Jer- Joe Teravecchia, Steve Larson, Andy Tuthill, and and uh, Eric Winkleman um, made an attempt uh, following up the way the Japanese did on the, uh, I guess, looking at the mountain, the left side of the Lynxar Glacier, which was a, a big dead end. Um, then I showed up and um, and w- did some reconnaissance up, um, up a gully and up onto these meadows that, and explored, you uh, kind of the Southern Southeastern, uh, aspect of the mountain, um, but didn't get very high. Um, but that ended up being, um, the, the starting point for w- what we did in 2017, the you know, where I went in 2001 ended up being the right way to go and, and, and was the way we went up to, to establish an advanced space camp up there and work out of that camp, uh, you know, higher on the peak.
0: Mm-hmm. And so Graham in the, in 2017, it was the two of you, you and Steve and Chris, Wright, And I went to, to Linksar, and, uh, did you go and try the line that Steve had found on that reconnaissance or was it something Something new. Tell us a little bit how, how the 2017 trip went.
2: I think, I think one thing important to, to kind of bring up with, with the description, but kind of back to the description of Linksar is every, everything that we're talking about here is talking about the kind of the eastern aspect of the mountain and the timeline for how things opened up um, in terms of Linksar uh, being available as a climbing objective. Um the, there's a there is a face that faces into the Characusa Valley that's seen a variety mm-hmm. of attempts that um that was open during some of the time that the east face was closed. But I think that the big the big um the big thing that Steve did in two thousand one was identify that the east face was realistically the best way, uh both in terms of how direct the line is and how safe the line is. Uh, it's the best way to climb the peak links are. Um, And Steve, if I'm not mistaken, in 2001, you made it up to approximately um, the kind of ridge line above our advanced base camp there at uh, kind of just below 5,000 meters. Is that right?
1: That's right. And uh, which ended up being kind of our starting point in 2017, you know, you and I were up there exploring that ridge and, that ended up not being the right way to go either. But you, you and I were able to, able to kind of pick up uh, from where we left off in 2001 and and spend a bunch of time really trying to figure out, uh, um, you know, the almost like the approaches to the mountain. Like Lynxar kind of sits behind, but there's all these complicated, you know, ridges and 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 rock barriers that you need to find your way around to kind of even get to the mountain. And, uh, a lot of our work in 2017 was really uh, trying to figure out how to do that. Yeah, exactly.
2: And so I think, um, the Condes Valley is one of the deepest valleys in the Karakoram, and the relief from our base camp, uh, to the top of the mountain was, was I think over 12,000 feet. So there's, there's a lot of relief to deal with there. And, the lo- the the face the east face of Linksar being you know essentially being a you know twelve thousand foot face comes comes all the way down so that you know the bottom reaches of it the bottom few thousand feet are grassy kind of bluffy hillsides it's not it's not really what you'd think of as you know kind of a Karakoram mountain face terrain it's it's kind of like ibex pastures and. Um, And it's and it's funny because this is not terrain uh, that, you know, it's not particularly attractive terrain to go and climb. It's also kind of challenging terrain to navigate. And so Steve, Chris and I spent a lot of time in 2017 basically figuring out how to reach the upper mountain. And um, there was there was a period of about three weeks when we had advanced base camp set up and we're just trying different potential routes to kind of get through that terrain and and it was funny because we we ended up doing a lot of rock climbing a lot of ice climbing a lot of kind of you know none of it none of it uh particularly hard but but a few different attempts to kind of get through this terrain and then what ended up being the solution was to kind of follow where the ibex had been going (laughs) and uh and they had been going there was this pass that you, you couldn't really see very well um but we ended up finding, you know, kind of following the Ibex tracks through this pass, which dropped us down onto a glacier system that we were then able to climb up to reach the the kind of start of, you know, what what really felt like the uh, the first kind of real climbing on the mountain. I mean, there's certainly been some, you know, moderately technical climbing below that, but um, from what we were referring to as Camp One, uh, we were able to kind of launch into, you know. The, Proper meat and potatoes of the kind of technical technical mixed and ice climbing on the peak we had we basically from camp one we were able to climb up to fifty nine hundred meters, which was our camp two, and that was our high point in uh in two thousand and seventeen and we we made one attempt on the peak, quickly became apparent that we were not acclimatized enough in order to go any higher additionally, uh, the weather forecast that we had had said. We had a about six days of good weather, but that collapsed down to a three day window so we found that a we weren't we weren't acclimatized enough, and b we weren't um we didn't have enough enough good weather so 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 we were able to kind of solve the you know some of the logistical problems but one of the biggest challenges of the climb is the fact that our base camp is so low and the valley is so steep that acclimatization is really really challenging. We had uh, an advanced base camp in 2017 that was just a couple of small tents and kind of a pile, of, a pile of freeze-dried food and gas that we had brought up there. <laughs> and we really, we really kind of discovered in retrospect that that was not going to be sufficient for, you know, acclimatizing and also just kind of being prepared to actually climb the route. So that was that was kind of the major. Um, major insight we had for uh you know how we wanted to do do it differently uh on our next try. I think it was pretty neat because um you know something that's a major theme on this climb and something that we'll be talking about kind of throughout I think throughout the story is that it really took the experience of like this climb required the experience not just of like young guns to go and climb some really hard stuff to get up this mountain. It required um experience and knowledge of how to deal with these mountains and how to deal with these really big mountain faces, And, and Steve in particular brought a lot of that to the fold. And, um, and I think that uh, Steve, you know, we can credit Steve not only with having figured out, you know, how to uh, how to get up to advanced base camp and dealing with the permit process over, over the years, but also, but also I think with the insight of how, we should kind of redesign our plan for our next uh, next expedition so that we could be better situated to actually deal with the upper mountain and deal with the climb as a whole. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I want to ask you about how you dealt with that, getting sort of a a more elaborate ABC. But one thing that was new in in 2019 was you decided to climb as a team of four with, with with Mark Ritchie. Had you determined that you needed four people for this route or was Mark just like, Hey, I want to come too.
1: Well, we invited Mark to come in 2017, but because of work commitments and other things, kind of at the at the last minute, he decided he couldn't come and we went as a team of three. And you know, I think for me, a lot of it was just wanting to have another person more my age who I had a lot of experience with on the trip. I mean, there was nothing... I mean uh, Chris and Graham and I got along great in in 2017 but uh, um, I just uh, I just thought it'd be fun to have Mark uh, actually with us uh, in 2019 and and I think as 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 we uh, tell the story uh, um, he ended up being a very valuable addition. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, as Graham was saying earlier I think that on these, you know, big Karakoram climbs, what I've learned over the years is that one of the key strategies to success is really thinking hard about how to break these things up into pieces and, and what kind of style or what, you know, what kind of logistics you need to sort of use, you know, you know, for the various different pieces. And like Graham mentioned, uh, are the big, you know, in 2017, I think we, we figured out the route. We felt pretty confident that this was the line that we wanted to climb, you know, based on all the work that we'd done in 2001 and photographs we had of links from when Graham and I and Scott Bennett climbed Changi tower, uh, on an adjacent ridge in 2015, looking across, you know, all that information, everything we had was like, this is the right way to go. But, in 2017, it, you know, we just didn't have a way to live up at a higher elevation um, for long enough periods of time with good enough food to, to really be able to launch into the mountain uh, quickly enough when weather got good. Um, uh, we were way down at base camp and it's just too far to go. So that was, the, the, like Graham said, that was the big change we made in 2019.
0: So so how did you solve that problem?
1: Well, what we did was um, we, uh, coming off of the glacier, uh, the Kiberi Glacier, there's a rock band that goes all the way across. Uh, and in 2017, we went up this really kind of crappy gully. Uh, that was subject to rockfall and uh, we knew we to get up on this big meadow that then it was easy to walk up through the grass to our advanced base camp so we wanted to be able to use porters low altitude porters to get all of our stuff up to a, a higher advanced base camp at about 4,600 meters where we could live and as it turns out uh, there's some local guys there in the village of Carmending who uh, who we, who we hired as our porters, who uh, a couple of the guys had had uh, scrambled up some rock slabs to, to get up to those meadows before to hunt Ibex. And they showed us a way to climb up there um, where we could avoid this gully that had some rockfall problems. And uh, we thought it was a little bit too exposed uh, to have the porters go up at just, you know, climbing, you know, free solo with their little rubbery, crappy boots so we built a um sort of a via ferrata huh. with with uh ropes and 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 uh knotted ropes and thing we probably had about eight lengths of rope and then we hired five porters that we had enough harnesses to equip each one with a harness and a lanyard and, a, and train them to to go up and down this via ferrata between the glacier and the upper meadows so that they could go back and forth and we we were confident that they were clipped in all the time and nobody would fall off carrying a heavy load and and we used those guys to to ferry um probably about 15 20 loads up to our advanced base camp and that enabled us to uh bring two of our staff uh Fida Ali and and, um, Nadim up there with us, uh, to cook. Uh, and, uh, so our advanced base camp became in 2019, a very comfortable place to be able to hang out and live while we're waiting for the weather to, that we needed to climb the mountain.
0: Wow. And so had you planned that from home and you, you knew that this was going to be the, that you were going to try to build this via Ferrata and brought the harnesses, brought the ropes for that was, was that a plan you made back after the 2017 trip? Yes. Great. You know, it strikes me that although this was a really modern expedition in many ways with a, you know, a very small team and alpine style ascent, difficult climbing, it was, it was quite traditional in the length of time it required. I mean, you were gone from home about a month, I think, before you got Advanced Base Camp fully established. And it was nearly two months before you could actually make your attempt on the mountain. Did you, did you have reason to think it might take that long or, or, and you allowed for that amount of time or did it take longer than expected? So, with
2: this expedition, um you know we we're kind of dealing with a lot of different military maneuvers and things like that uh in this area, and those you know so our permit is contingent on not only the military allowing us into the area, you know kind of full stop, but also kind of making sure that our travel sequences are in line with when they actually want us kind of moving through these areas. And so mm-hmm. we, we a lot of our planning going into this trip had to do with um kind of when when we thought we were most likely to be able to get the permit and so so we ended up leaving earlier than we might have otherwise to help guarantee that we'd get the permit and um and you know of course we got the permit so that that worked and then we arrived and and uh we had an inkling that it was going to take a while to climb this route but the Karakoram had one of its snowiest winters on record this last winter, and so we showed up and things were really snowy um the The advance base camp uh where in two thousand seventeen we you know we just been on these gorgeous kind of green ibex pastures um had about six feet of snow on it oh wow, and so a lot of a lot of this trip um was you know it was kind of spent dealing with that and so it was really interesting because we showed up and we had all this snow and if we had had a if we had been on you know kind of a traditional six-week trip I think we would have been kind of hosed mm-hmm. but since we had this long block of time uh, we were able to really put the time in to set up that advanced base camp despite all the snow and acclimatize really well and when that snow had finally receded to a point where the mountain was actually safe to go climbing, then we were in a really good position to, to do that.
0: And and how high on the actual route did you go during your acclimatization, you know, above your ABC?
2: Uh, we went to about 6,100 meters.
0: Oh, well, so pretty high then.
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we knew that we had, we knew that we had a lot of serious climbing and I think this, this peak is interesting in the sense that, uh, It doesn't like some mountains, you know, you kind of get through the primary steep section. And then as you get towards the top, it kind of gets easier and easier. And and this 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 mountain stayed pretty steep uh, all the way to the top. And I mean, some of the some of the hardest climbing was 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 on, you know, the last the last pitches. So um, we knew that we were going to need to be really well acclimatized because we knew we were going to be spending a lot of time up high and we knew we were going to be working really hard up there.
0: And were you climbing actual pitches that you eventually did on the on the route? I mean, did you fix any ropes or anything, or did you just uh, kind of go up and down to for acclimatization?
2: Uh, we were climbing. The, we were climbing the same pitches that we climbed on the route, and uh, we didn't fix any ropes up there or anything like that. But certainly, certainly, we're, we did kind of get a preview of those pitches. And I mean, I guess we already had because we climbed in two thousand seventeen. Like, there's very much an element of red point alpinism in all of this.
0: Um, I think I read something about Chris saying that he'd left gear there in 2017. He was hoping to be able to pinpoint the crux pitches when he returned.
2: There was actually, there was a, there was a bit of gear sticking out of the ice. Uh, He certainly wanted to place more.
0: Right. So as I understand, it was July 31st, almost two months after you left home and you finally are ready to go, set out from advanced base camp. And the summit is, I don't know, more than 7,500 feet overhead still. In the end, I think the climb took you six days and the descent another three days. I thought that rather than walk through each of those days, we should sort of focus on the critical moments of the climb, the real crucial decision points, Um, maybe both those you made in advance if they're relevant and the ones you had to make on the fly. And it sounds like one of the first was to plan a relatively short first day of the climb and then begin day two by climbing some of those hardest pitches through the night. Can you tell us? little bit about that
2: so let's see we um uh leaving and departing from our advanced base camp um we climbed to camp one in the morning which is uh which is a relatively short effort uh, i think i think it took us about four hours to, to make it from from advanced base camp to camp one and and then we spent the full afternoon resting there before before launching to uh camp two in the evening um, and the reason for that was that the the Karakoram is is a pretty warm range, and during these periods of good weather, um, you could be dealing with some it you was know, pretty surprisingly warm temperatures and uh And I think in the case of when we we were climbing on Lynxar uh in in late July and early August, you know it wasn't it wasn 't quite freezing at night um so when we climbed through the kind of where where the st- kind of stacked crux pitches of the route were um it was it was pretty fascinating climbing because there's a lot of ice and mixed climbing in there and the ice was not particularly frozen it was kind of there was some pretty slushy climbing up there um which made it which made it hard and scary and uh chris in particular had some pretty fantastic leads on that stuff um really really keeping it keeping it together on some pretty it's a pretty scary ground that earlier in the trip, when when temperatures had been a little colder, had actually been pretty secure mixed climbing, and so our, our that that was that was a whole reason for our decision to climb climb through the night on that first night on the climb, and uh, and it really paid off, and that put us at our camp two at about 5,900 meters. Um, I think we got there uh, kind of in the mid morning. So you
0: climbed all night, night then to, to Yeah, travel. we
2: climbed we climbed from about 5 p.m. till about 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then uh and then rested through that following day the um, whole day. Yeah, through that whole day, which is, you know, it was a pretty it was a pretty big effort to uh to get to get through all that terrain in the night. And so that so that but that really set us up so that we were a little higher on the mountain where things were a little colder and uh and then we were able to you know, that, that really set us up for, for the rest of the climb pretty effectively. And I think one, one important note is launching into that window. Also, we were well aware that we had about 36 hours of bad weather, um, that were going to show up, um, about three days into the climb. And so we were, we were fully, fully prepared for that also. So our goal was to get ourselves safely up to a position where we could, where we could kind of hang tight and sit through, sit through some bad weather. Um, Now that's a
0: surprise to me. So you, you started up the route knowing that a storm was coming. Uh, Yes. And did you have a sense, first of all, tell us a little bit about how you, how you knew that. I mean, how you get this information, but also did you have a sense of sort of the scale of it? And you sort of knew it was going to be something that would be manageable if you could reach that safe spot. And did you uh, scope out that safe spot during your acclimatization? Had you reached that point so that you knew that you could uh, dig in and 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 be safe in the storm that you expected to arrive.
1: Maybe I'll I'll answer the weather part of that. So you know we get custom forecasts uh, from uh, the United States. There's a a, a forecaster, uh, Jim Woodman, who lives in Jackson Hole, MountainWeather.com, who I've used probably for about 15 years now, and you yeah I. I um, I think that's another one of the really important things to spend money on when you when you do an expedition like this it's really not not that expensive relative to the expensive overall expedition it makes a huge difference um, on uh, your decision making uh, you know because we're on the phone we're on the sat phone with Jim you know he's looking at Multiple models, and he's telling us that hey, you guys are going to have a couple of nice days here, but it looks like a week uh, low pressure um, is going to come through. That's going to allow a small amount of moisture to come by, uh, but it's only going to last like 24 to 36 hours. Then it looks like that after that, you've got five more days of good weather. And given how much time it really takes us to do a route like this, you know, we made the decision that, well, let's head up in the good weather we have right now and we'll get up to uh, a camp where we can hunker down for 24 to 36 hours. uh, If the forecast is correct, we're not going to get a lot of snow to really impact our conditions that much. And then we'll be able to be that much higher on the mountain and, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, to to go again when it looks like we're going to have another five good days of weather.
2: One of the really interesting things about this route is that while it did have a lot of steep climbing on it, it also the the face kind of leveled out a number of times and um, kind of we, so we knew that we were going to have um, pretty good bivvies. This, we, we were, we were pretty, pretty positive that this was not going to be one of those routes where like digging into the side of the mountain and have a little bivvy platform where, you know, one of the one of the poles of or one of the corners of the tent is like hanging off. We were we were pretty we were we were, we felt pretty secure in the fact that that we were going to have big bivvy platforms and they were going to be places where we could safely weather out um a bit of a bit of bad weather. And um and that was certainly the case. So so our goal was to get up to um kind of the third bivvy on the route where we could see that you know we should have a pretty a pretty reasonable option for a good place to, to hang out. And so that, that ended up certainly being the case. Um, We kind of made it, made it, uh, made it up to that third camp and we're climbing, climbing up through kind of a, through kind of around the side of a Serac barrier and then up a series of kind of steep slopes. And then that leveled out into this perfect bivy platform that was big enough that we could, you know, build a wall around the tents. We could, we had plenty of room to walk around. There was, there was a big kind of bergshrun that sat between that bivy and the rest of the face. So if there was any shedding from the face above us, it would run into that crevasse rather than rather than um, you know running into us. And so we were you know that really that really paid off in the sense that that when we got up to that third bivy on the route, um, we were in a super comfortable position to hang out really as long as we needed to. And then as Steve brought up. We had this, you know, we had uh, Jim Woodmancy on board to, to forecast for us. And he was, he was able to, A, tell us, you know, this, this weather should only last for about 36 hours. And then we also had a satellite phone with us. So he was able to be providing us with updates. So we weren't dealing with old information. We were actually getting, getting updates from him while we were en route. So we could, you know, kind of make the best decision possible. Um, Oh,
0: okay. So he's able to say, yeah, you've got another 12 hours, um, you know, hang in there and then, and then things should start to improve.
2: Exactly. Um, and so that really, that really gave us the confidence, um, to be able to be, to be on the route kind of during a cycle of bad weather. And I, and I think that, you know, we knew that this route was going to take us a long time and, uh, and, you know, kind of asking for asking for, or kind of saying that we need, you know. Whatever seven or eight day window in order to climb this mountain is a little bit unrealistic, so this was this was kind of our uh I think our best solution and it ended up working out really well
0: Mm-hmm. and uh, how long did you end up spending at that camp?
2: uh we ended up spending about thirty six hours there so on our uh third day on route we um we arrived there kind of midday and the weather came in uh, that afternoon and then we Waited for the weather, uh, or we wait, wait, waited through bad weather for that afternoon and evening, and then the attire next day, and then launched mm-hmm. again, uh, at about three o'clock in the morning on the following morning,
0: right? And then I understand that the weather didn't quite clear on that morning. You had to sit, sit and wait again after after you left camp, or
1: yeah, well, I mean, we left the camp when we got up. it, it wasn't snowing. Uh, but after we left the camp, it, it, it's, it, it started snowing in earnest and, uh, the climbing route out of the camp is relatively easy up some, you know, snow slopes that we could just simul climb rope together. Uh, but then we get up to the steep upper part of the mountain. And when we got to that Bergschrund there, uh, uh, that separates the, easy climbing from our third bivy to where the serious climbing started we had to kind of sit in the stormy weather and wait for daylight and even then it was still snowing to to where we uh we didn't want to start up and so uh, graham uh just to keep everybody's attention and something to do he, he said well let's just build this little snow cave here where we can uh We can hang out and get out of the stormy weather, uh, while we're waiting for, uh, for it to pass because, uh, we sent a text to Jim saying, Hey, it's still snowing. What's going on? And he sent us a text back and he goes, just hang on. It'll a few more hours. It'll be okay. You know? And so we hung out there for a couple hours in our little snow cave and, and, um, and sure enough, uh, it, it, it cleared off and, and, uh, we crossed the Bergschrund and, and, um, there was a rock band, uh, kind of mixed climbing through a rock band, right? At, that we had encountered right away, that we were concerned about. It looked like there was a chimney there that uh, we didn't know what it'd be like. But one of the gifts that we did have on the route was we got into that chimney. It was really good ice climbing. It was really fun and safe and good. Good. Uh, it's like climbing a grade four ice uh, pitch in the Canadian Rockies in the winter uh and um we had a couple pitches of that um that then got us up onto what we called the snow fin which is this sort of snow arête that we're kind of climbing along the side of it to get us through uh, uh, a, a serac berry up above two big CERACs on either side. We call them the eyebrows cause it kind of looked like a face with these big eyebrows and the fin being the nose that came down the middle. But it, it kind of, um, kept you out from under those CERACs and and a way to kind of uh, get through that up onto like a, a big, um, another flat area, uh, where we were planning to have our fourth bivouac, uh, before we then had to climb the summit tower. So Graham, maybe I'll let you talk about climbing the, the snow fin.
0: Yeah. Before that, I was curious, uh, did that, uh, delay in the morning put a lot of pressure on to reach you you knew you, it sounds like you had a bivouac site in mind that you had to reach or really hope to reach. Uh, were you sort of hustling to, to make that or did you have plenty of time?
1: I think we had plenty of, t- we weren't too concerned about it. It wasn't that far and we didn't get delayed that much. I think by the time we started climbing, it was like still like eight or nine o'clock in the morning.
0: Mm. And I, I was also curious on the, on the more technical sections of the route, uh, you know, climbing is a party of four. I'm always curious how you manage the technical pitches with, with four people. Were you guys jugging or some of you following or self belaying or, or how did, how did you manage the, uh, you know, the really technical leads.
2: So, uh, throughout the entire climb, we used, um, I think we used pretty much the same rope system the whole time, which was to have the leader leading with, uh, two, um, double, double ropes. So two, seven, seven ropes, and then having, uh, two seconds, second behind them, each one, each tied to, uh, or each one tied to, one of those ropes, kind of a traditional system for a party of three. And then one of those seconds would then be trailing an additional seven, seven rope that with which they would bring up the fourth. And, and that were, and it worked really well. Um, I think it gave us some more manpower for the climb and, and I don't really think it acted as a hindrance at all. And then for going back down, we would, uh, we would have, one person repel on a single line, find the repel anchor, build it, and then uh and then call off repel and then um and then a second person would come down, and then the two above would actually drop that rope which would then be tagged to the um tagged to the next anchor, and then the next two and then the the third and fourth person would come down on on a double rope system. So that kind of kept us spread out on the descent, which actually worked really well also.
0: So are you saying that uh, everybody more or less climbed every pitch uh, or was there ever, uh, you know, were you ever jugging?
2: Nope, no, no jugging. We had, uh, we had everybody, everybody climbing everything.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So back to high on the mountain, how high, how far below the top was your final bivouac or, or what elevation were you at at that point?
2: Let's see. So, okay. So Steve was talking about how we climbed through the, uh, through the mix section, the kind of final, final upper mix section, section on the mountain. And then we, and then above that, we got into this feature that we were calling the fin, um, which is, which was ended up being really pretty challenging. I mean, it was, it was, um, it wasn't particularly technical climbing, but it was just deep, uh, deep crappy snow. Um, you know, we, we had reached this point in the season where the snow had consolidated to a point where it was stable, but, um, but it, but it was, but it wasn't like we didn't, we weren't dealing with like hard neve or something mm-hmm. like that, which would have, which would have seriously increased the uh rate at which we would have climbed through that section. But as it was, it was, it was just kind of like wallowy crappy snow. And, um, the climbing itself was time consuming and exhausting and then building anchors also took a long time. So I think that section of the climb, you know, really, uh, it was kind of, it was, it was one of those sections where, uh, you know, it wasn't like cool modern mixed climbing. It was old school kind of blue collar hard work and, uh, (laughs) Um, but so that, that section took a while and then, um, but then at the very, uh, the second to last pitch on, on, uh, day of climbing, we actually kind of ran into a bunch of Serac ice, which then the the nature of the climbing changed dramatically from lots of soft wallowy snow to, you know, bullet hard, um, vertical or just off vertical ice climbing, (laughs) which is kind of a, kind of a challenging transition. You know, you start having to swing really hard at things. (laughs) but the protection got a lot better and uh and then above that pitch there was one more um one more wallowy snow pitch and then the angle just, just really really kicked back and we ran into you know another one of these kind of planned uh kind of level spots on the route where we were able to easily put in um a really good safe spacious bivy
0: right so the so the last day of the climb you're you're how far to the top
1: about 300 meters
0: and uh it sounds like it was uh you know it was pretty full on so why don't you one of you tell me about that last day
1: well maybe i'll start into it and then uh, graham you can pick it up uh you know we had another steep pitch of some neve-ish, some crappy snow climbing up onto kind of a, a snow fin again, that moved kind of from right to left and you're kind of traversing and climbing up it, you know, from right to left. And periodically there's these little, little walls of snow that you had to climb up and around. But again, it was just sort of more of the same where, you know, the leader would run it out and then, um, Sometimes you might be lucky and get an nice screw anchor and oftentimes you couldn't and you'd have to like dig a big hole and, and build some kind of a dead man, you know, out of a picket or a stuff sack filled with snow um, for an anchor. So again, the anchors are taking a long time. And um, just before we uh, um, got to the, the actual last couple, three pitches to the summit, Um, Graham took over leading and then Graham, why don't you talk about that?
2: Yeah. So uh, let's see, Chris had led uh, three or four pitches and uh, they'd done a great job. It was kind of like, like Steve said, we had one, one pitch that was actually like kind of good climbing. And then, uh, and then the rest of it was more of this wallowy, wallowy garbage. And, um, and so I, so I took over the lead and on the first lead of my block, um, I got into some snow that was unstable and it slid, um, a small, a small slide and knocked me out of my feet and sent me for a fall. Oh. And it wow. was pretty, it was pretty dramatic, but, um, but I was, I was, I was un, uninjured and, um, and the guys were, you know, I kind of got, got back up to the belay and the guys were ready, ready to go down if that's what, if that's what we felt like we needed to do. Um, but I, I told them that if, you know, I was, I wasn't going to lead anymore, but I, I basically told those guys that, um, if they, if they wanted to continue leading the last, you know, uh, 150 meters to the summit that I was, that I was, that I was totally up for, up for seconding. And, uh, and Chris, Chris took the reins back over and, and really, really uh, I mean, continued his lead block for another three pitches, um, of, of, uh, he, he got himself into some, some, some really good ice. And then, uh, and then up into kind of up to the summit Ridge, which started with some really good ice climbing and ended with some really terrible and consolidated snow. And, um, and, and that was, you know, that had us within, you know, uh, a pitch of the summit. And the end of this climb was was pretty was pretty amazing, um, because so we end, we ended up in this situation where Chris had gotten to this anchor, and the anchor that he had was uh was not was not very good. Um, he was kind of in a bunch of soft snow, and and so I had climbed in and kind of put in a dead man, and then kind of built myself into the dead man anchor. And so I was kind of sitting in this hole, and so at this point I was kind of the anchor, um, <laughs> which is really not what. <laughs> which is pretty you know it's not particularly optimal particularly since we were going to have to start going down you know shortly this is we were so close to the top and uh and so chris chris heads off into the last bit of climbing and gets up into some into some snow that um that he didn't really know how to deal with it was really really steep unconsolidated snow
0: when you say really really steep i'm trying to picture I mean, can you describe how steep it actually was?
2: You know, I think that. Well, I think that the thing that comes to mind is we, we hear a lot about this uh, this vertical powder snow that you get down in Peru, and mm. and uh, it was I don't know if I'd quite call it powder snow. It was um, probably a little a little more aged than that, but uh, but it was it was vertical snow climbing in in snow that was very very unconsolidated. Um, you know, the kind of thing where you're really you just can dig forever and you're not going to find anything, uh, any particularly good purchase. And so Mm -hmm. Chris, Chris came down and, and we're kind of sitting there at the belay having this discussion about, Oh man, like, I mean, it might just be a big cornice up there. If it's a big cornice, then have we kind of, you know, we've kind of reached the top, like what's, you know, what, what are we, what are we supposed to do here? And, and, um, and I, I, uh, ask Mark if he would go out and, uh, and have a look because Mark has spent a lot of time climbing down in Peru. And, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's really where he cut, cut his teeth. And, um, and, and it was like, you know, you know, Mark, if, if anybody can get through this shitty snow up there, it's going to be you. And why don't you just go, why don't you just go have a look? And so he, he kind of went over there tentatively to have a look and, and starts kind of swimming swimming up up through this really bad snow and as as he's doing that we're kind of watching him like slowly make progress up this terrain um and chris is belaying and and i was i guess i was the belay (laughs) and uh and it was like steve we need a good anchor for uh for, you know, getting off this mountain. Can, can you like see what you can do? And so, so I'm sitting there and, and as the person who, you know, kind of was able to sit there and just kind of watch what was going on. because I was kind of dug into this hole with everybody else tied to me. Um, you know, we had, we had Mark up there, uh, you know, kind of swimming, swimming up through this awful terrain. Chris is, Chris is exhausted from a fabulous lead block. Um, Mark is up in the final 20 meters of the climb. Dealing with this awful snow, and then Steve is down there, and he's dug directly into the mountain. All I can see is like his knees down, sticking out of this hole that he's dug, where he's just <laughs> he's just digging for an anchor. And you know, we hear him down like, "Oh, they're going to found something!" They're like, "Oh, there's some good ice down here." And Marks up there like, "I think I'm getting to the top." It was just like it was just so such a cool demonstration of how everybody's expertise. And everybody's effort was required to get up this mountain, you uh-huh. know, and, and, uh, you know, particularly in those last few hours to kind of get through that last, you know, that last pitch. And, um, it was really, it was really special because I think that, you know, kind of like we talked about earlier, um, uh, we have, you know, we have some of these climbs, some of these kind of newer, newer climbs, oftentimes really technical, hard face climbs, that you know have a lot of hard technical climbing on them but are logistically a lot less complex and you know are something that like two two young guns could go could go get done and be pretty happy about. But I really, I really feel strongly that this climb on Lynxar um like I don't think I don't think any group of us could have done it without um could have done it without, without everybody else. Like it really, it really required the entire team to get up the mountain Hmm. and to do so safely. And uh, which is really, which is really special.
0: You know, in your, in your uh, news release about the climb, you specifically mentioned a sort of democratic approach to decision-making. And I'm curious about that scene where you're all sitting there at that belay after Chris has come back down. And I mean, did Mark, sort of have to be talked into taking the lead at that point, or was he psyched or, you know, sort of, how did you, how did it proceed where he decided, okay, I think I might be able to do this, or at least I'll go have a look.
1: Well, actually at that moment, I think that we didn't get into a big discussion of it. It, it, it That's the other cool thing about this team was that, you know, people seemed to instinctively know, you know, kind of what to do. You know, Mark was out there, he, you know, I think he was very keen to actually, you know, you know, get to the Cumbre, you know. Um, and uh, I was a little bit like, okay, whatever, maybe it's a big cornice and it's not safe to go up there and he's out there checking it out. And I'm kind of like, I get up there and I go, I looked over at Graham over there, who's basically our anchor. And I'm like, well, I think we need to be, you know, attached to the mountain better than this. And so I just started digging this hole. And it, everybody just kind of fell into, you know, uh, you know, roles and jobs that needed to be done without really a lot of conversation.
0: So what, what, when did you, what, what, what time was it when you actually all were standing on top?
1: It was just before dark wow. and, okay. um, uh, it was quite spectacular, uh, because we got, uh, to the top just as. The sun was going down, and the whole Karakoram just sort of lit up with alpine glow. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing view, but um, we couldn't really stay there for very long because uh, because it was it was it was it was just getting dark, and we had a had a complicated descent.
0: Yeah, you were were you returning to the your your high bivvy? Had you left your bivvy in place uh, from the previous night? Exactly. So you had to get down there. What what was that anchor that you found? deep in the snow steve
1: uh probably four or five feet back in i found a uh you know a band of of ice almost kind of like if you were you know in a mine and and you had this shaft that you were in and then all of a sudden you had this sort of you know layer of gold you know <laughs> in there that you were trying to mine i just got back to some really good ice after i dug for a while and by the time, uh, you know, everybody climbed up to the summit and then down climbed back to that anchor, and then we started rappelling from there.
0: Oh, so you had to down climb that steep, nasty snow, all of you? Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: There would be no way, nothing to rappel off on the summit.
0: Right. And then it took three more days to get down. Is that right?
1: Getting down the mountain
2: um, was was really challenging because once again, we were dealing with with all of these, um, you know, a lot of kind of crappy snow, and particularly rappelling through that, um, that, you know, kind of down from the summit, and then down through that feature that we were calling the fin, took a lot of work, Um, building some of those rappel anchors was taking two and a half or three hours of digging and testing and kind of just trying to find, trying to find a good option for a rappel anchor. And I think something that this uh, the descent really demonstrated super well was that not only was this team super dedicated to climbing this mountain, but also climbing it safely. And, um, you know, there was no complaint and there was no griping about the fact that the building rappel anchors was taking so long. It was just like, that's how long it was taking to find an anchor that, you know, we were happy to hang off of for repelling. And that was, you know, if that's what it was going to take, then,
0: then no problem. Two 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 and a half to three can. hours sometimes to build an anchor. That's incredible.
2: Yeah. Some some of the snow was pretty, it was pretty foul. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, um, and so, yeah, so it was, it was really cool. I mean, and we all worked together super well on the way down to, to get down, to get down the mountain safely.
0: Uh, how extended were you at that point? Had you run out of food or fuel or anything or did you have enough for that long. You know,
2: we, we kind of continued to ration, ration our food pretty effectively, um, on the way up when it was, you know, when we can kind of tell how much, how much, um, time it was taking. And so I don't think we ever ran out of food, but we certainly weren't eating very much. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, uh, and then the other component on the way down was, was that once again, the heat of the day, um, was an issue. And, um, you know, as we moved further into this kind of second part of our, I guess the kind of second weather, weather window we were climbing in, um, it was getting warmer during the day. And so that really meant that, uh, that, uh, you know, at midday we weren't, we weren't going anywhere. So we had, we had some pretty, um, long chunks of time during the descent where we were sitting, sitting and waiting for things to cool down. Sure. Um, so that, so that we could make
0: sure that that everything would be safe. I actually I was on my list of questions for Steve in fact about you know because Steve you have such a long history in the Karakoram and I'm talking about the warmth in the mountain and it's something we've been seeing a lot in recent years reports from the range uh with the warmth making things either very difficult or impossible and I wondered if you having observed this for almost well about four decades now if you think that there's sort of a question of annual variation or you think we're in a sort of more permanent climate related change in the way people are going to have to climb in the Karakoram?
1: Well, I think it's definitely the latter. Um, I would say 40 years ago, you know, at base camps like K2, you know, where you're at 17,000 feet, it would never, it would always snow. You would never get rain at a base camp like that. And pretty much in the month of July. Now, uh, you're getting rain up to like 19, maybe even 20,000 feet. And, and we've been seeing that kind of rain, uh, for at least the last five, six years for sure. Um, and it's, and pretty consistently every year in July, it rains up to that high. Uh, so I, you know, I think that, uh, um, it's not just an annual variation. It's something that's that pretty much happens every year now. Uh, and really, uh, anything that you're doing, uh, getting up, you know, between six and seven thousand, until you're getting up kind of closer to seven thousand meters, uh, uh, you're really uh, impacted by the heat. Uh, not only, um, you know, how conditions can be impacted by the heat. But also just it's too hot to climb, you know, if you're out there. That's how you feel. Yeah. You know, I mean, if even if you're on kind of moderate terrain where you're just sort of walking along, it would get so hot that you just have to stop because it's just too exhausting to move along. And that kind of heat, you, it would be a lot more efficient to stop, wait for the heat of the day to go by and then and climb during the cooler parts of the day when, when you feel better.
0: Hmm. Do you think that the climbing season will change in the Karakoram? Do you think I know people have begun to experiment with going and or trying to make their climbs in September instead of traditional summer trips? Is is that working, or if not, what might the future hold? Uh,
1: You know, my only experience, like on a real pretty high mountain where you're getting up above seven thousand meters, is if you get into September, it gets really cold. Uh, And then if you get storms, then you're then they're like winter storms that, you know, uh, where you're not going to get the kind of consolidation, um, you know, an improvement in snow conditions, you know, when the weather gets better, you know, that you sort of need for it to be safe. So I think that the window, um, you know, you either have to manage climbing in the hotter weather in July like we did on Linksar. Um, Or you can wait a little, I mean, by the middle of August, it cools down considerably, like after the Mm -hmm. 15th of August, it's much cooler. Um, But then your, you know, your window gets short before it gets, you know, cold and snowy in September. So, um, you know, I think what we've been doing is, is really trying to use the month of July, you know, to get up into position, you know, kind of deal with the hot weather as best we can by climbing at night and, and uh, um, you know, or in the evenings, and then uh, um, on some climbs, uh, uh, if it's just too hot, we wait until the middle of August to summit to try to summit.
2: It's, it's something we've been talking about a lot, which is kind of changes in the mountain range, and you know kind of the idea of, okay, so we're dealing with some we're dealing with climate change. you know, oh, do we go earlier now, do we go later now? Um, what does this mean? And I think that uh this is true for, for a lot of mountain ranges, maybe maybe all mountain ranges that we're going to, um is that a lot of the kind of notions that have been established about when to go to areas and what is safe and what is not safe, and you know, kind of these um these kind of assumptions that have been built um by generations after generation after generation going to these areas. Um, a lot of them are kind of falling apart, and so it's less, oh, what's the what is the new standard? And I think what we need to be looking at is, okay, the standards are changing, and change is now present in these mountains, probably as it always has been. But I think that as we start, you know, going, you know, as, we, as we're going to the Karakoram or or the Alaska Range or the Andes or whatever, um, I think we just have to kind of ignore uh, assumptions from the past and make decisions based on what we're seeing right now. Um, this year we had a really snowy year in the Karakorum and we had to make decisions based on that. You know, if maybe last year it would have made more sense to go early this year to go early was not a good idea. Um, so, and I think that, I think that that's just kind of something that I'm trying to impress on, you know, everybody going to the mountains is that, um, we really need to make our own decisions about what's going to keep us safe, and we need to make sure that we have all the tools in our toolkit. Whether that's um, you know kind of uh, snow science or making sure that you have a weather forecaster on board, um, or making sure that you do your research properly, so that we can make all of the decisions that we need with the most information possible uh, to stay safe out there. Hmm.
1: You know, people ask me, well, when's the right time to go? You know, uh and you know, my answer there would really be, you know, if you're trying to do something really big, you know, like a climb like are, go for the whole summer.
0: Or go for three summers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Also, Steve, I, you know, I wanted to ask you about um, you know, this is your I think it's this is your fortieth year of climbing in the Karakoram, And uh you know you're 65 and 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 not to be too blunt but with this great success this year do you do you think this might be your swan song or are you already scheming at another trip
1: you know i i i kind of think this at least for this kind of you know high end kind of kind of climbing on on a route as hard as links are that um you know that i think this that might be it for me Um, I felt like this climb was about as much as I wanted to do and, uh, and I don't necessarily feel at least at this moment that, that I go have to you know, have a big desire to want to go out and do that again. Um, I also don't really have a project in the back of my mind that, you know, would get me that excited, like, like, like something like this to, to want to go do, you know, I mean, I could see myself... Going back and doing you know some cool things on some you know six thousand meter peaks, but you know to climb a mountain that had you know from the base camp to the summit has you know thirty four hundred meters of 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 uh elevation gain um I don't know if i if I need to do that again
0: yeah
2: he was he was actually checking out other objectives as we as we were leaving the range <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, gosh, how should I say this? Um, you know, a big part of alpine climbing, particularly on bigger objectives, is experience. And there's a lot more that goes into this than, you know, just the size of your forearms. And uh, and I did not anticipate um, what a fruitful and awesome relationship and partnership that Steve and I were going to have when he first got in touch, you know, five or six years ago about going going on an expedition together and uh i think that this climb really demonstrates the um the importance and the you know really the power of um you know uh kind of the these multi-generational efforts and you know the, the amount that i've learned from steve about climbing in this range and climbing in general and and a whole bunch of other life stuff um has been pretty profound and uh and it's really cool to have this climb that, you know, that we went out into together along with Chris and Mark, um, that I think really, um, is really demonstrative of that. And, uh, and I don't know while we're, while we're on the podcast, Steve, thanks for,
1: thanks for getting in touch about going climbing. <laughs> thanks Graham for your, oh, so such nice <laughs> kind words. <laughs> and big forearms. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs>
0: Thanks to Steve and Graham for coming on the show. We look forward to sharing more of their story and photos in the next AHA. Thanks also to Hilleberg the tent maker, the presenting sponsor of The Cutting Edge. See all their bomb-proof tents and order a catalog at hilleberg.com. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, editor of the AHA, wishing you happy climbs.